Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 25. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who, was said, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, all. It's good to see you, and I uh, hope you are doing well this morning. And um, I realized when I gave the uh, scripture reference to uh, the team, I did not give them the full scripture reference. So we're actually going to go all the way through verse 35. And so I'll tell you what, before we keep going, I'm going to read the rest of this passage, all right? So you can stay seated if you want to. I'm just going to move through it quick, but I don't want to leave it out. So um, we ended with, Marshall, you ended where? Uh, let's see, verse 25, I think. 27. 25, okay. So picking up 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, but when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. Okay, now we got it all in there. Well, in any case, good morning to you. Let's get ready for this sermon. And I was thinking um, of Stephen Crane. 
who is the author of that book that many of us have read in middle school called The Red Badge of Courage. And you may not have known that Stephen Crane uh, also was a poet and has a collection of poetry. And one of the themes that shows up frequently in his poetry is this idea of the hiddenness of God or the silence of God. Uh, Stephen Crane was not the happiest of men. And when you read his poetry, you realize that he was vexed in life. And he was vexed with God. God was a, was a problem for him. And again, this idea of God's silence or hiddenness. So I wanted to start us off with a Stephen Crane poem this morning. I warn you, it is not a happy poem. We'll get happy by the end of the sermon. But here's what Stephen Crane says. And it's on this idea of the silence or the hiddenness of God. A spirit sped through spaces of night, and as he sped, he called, God, God. He went through the valleys of black death slime, ever calling, God, God. Their echoes from crevice and cavern mocked him, God, God, God. Fleetily into the plains of space, he went, ever calling, God, God. Eventually, then, he screamed, mad in denial, ah, there is no God. A swift hand, a sword from the sky smote him and he was dead. And so there's Stephen Crane's vision of God. We search for him, we search for him, we search for him, we can't find him. And when we say there is no God, he strikes us down for our unbelief. And Stephen Crane, as I said, was not a particularly happy man, but that problem really is a theological problem that many people have wrestled with all throughout history of belief. And it's one of the uh, great theological challenges of the Christian faith. If you're, in, uh, if you're into philosophy of religion or philosophy or theology, you'll know that the hiddenness or the silence of God is one of the great challenges of the Christian faith. Isaiah 45, 14, the prophet Isaiah feels this, and he himself, the prophet, says, truly you are a God who hides himself. So how do we account for the hiddenness of God, the silence of God? If there really is a God, and Stephen Crane would say this, why isn't he more obvious? Why doesn't he present himself to us? Why doesn't he answer us when we call? Now, some of you are not troubled by the silence of God because God always feels present to you. And to you, I say, God bless you. That is wonderful. You should count yourself very fortunate. Truly, that's a great gift. But for others of you, and I've been there myself, you feel a bit more like Stephen Crane, at least at certain points in your life. Traveling through the vast, empty spaces of the world, searching for God, and you can't seem to find him. Maybe that's true for you as a non-Christian this morning. If you're here this morning, Perhaps you're here as a non-Christian searching for God and you feel like your search for him is a little bit like Stephen Crane. You're searching through the vast regions of empty space, calling for God and have not yet found him. Maybe you're watching uh, on the live stream this morning and that's a similar case for you as well. God seems far removed and distant. It's hard to even know that he truly and really exists. Or maybe you're here this morning even as a committed Christian and you believe sincerely and you practice your faith religiously, you read your Bible, you pray, and perhaps there even has been some moment in your life in the past where God seemed very near and present. But now in this moment, for this season of life, it seems that he has receded into the background and you cannot find him. What do we make of God's hiddenness? 
Now, the quick and easy answer is to say sin. Right? Well, you're harboring some sin. If God doesn't feel near to you, that's your problem, not God's problem. We often say this. If you don't feel like God is near, it's not because God has moved. It's because you've moved. Right? The problem is you, not God. And sometimes that can be true, but not always. Because many of us can be living right with a sincere love for God, earnestly seeking him, but we still can't seem to find God's presence. So this morning, we're continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. We're in Luke chapter 24, which we've just read. And here we're encountering two disciples the morning of the resurrection. They've heard rumor of something going on from Mary and the other women that we saw last week in Easter. But it's not been confirmed. They don't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. But we're going to read about their encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And this encounter, I think, reveals a profound truth about the hiddenness of God. All right, so that's our focus this morning. So let's get back into our story, our larger story of the Bible. And last we left off, if you were fortunate enough to join us for our Easter celebration last week, Jesus had just appeared to Mary at the tomb, but only to Mary at this point. And we cobbled together the gospel narratives, and it seems it can be a little bit tricky to figure out the ordering of the appearances and when the women were here and when Peter and John showed up and how that all worked together. But cobbling it all together, it seemed that after Mary saw Jesus, Mary ran back to the disciples. So you remember she had gone there first. They had come, didn't see anything. They went home. Then Mary sees Jesus. Then it seems she runs back again and she gets them and she tells them, I've seen the Lord. So then they come again. We read here in Luke 24, they come again to see, is he there? And he's not there. And so they go back and we read at the end of Luke 24, Luke 24, verse 11, Mary's words seem to them an idle tale. So they just don't believe her, right? So he's risen from the dead. They don't believe her. And now we've got two of the disciples. We don't, they're, they're not, seems to be not one of the 12, right? Two of the 12. And they're on their way to Emmaus. And Jesus shows up. I just love this story. All right, so Emmaus... We pick up in verse 13 of chapter 24. Emmaus is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And the huge Passover celebration that coincided with Jesus' death and resurrection has just concluded. And there would have been hundreds of thousands of travelers or pilgrimages, pilgrims that would have come into Jerusalem, swelled Jerusalem during this Passover celebration from all around Israel, from all around the Roman Empire. And then now that it's concluded on the first day of the week, it's kind of, it's like our equivalent to like Monday morning after the weekend. This is Sunday morning, right? After the Passover celebration and everyone is dispersing out of Jerusalem and walking back to their homes. So no doubt the roads are filled with travelers making their way back to their homes. And two of Jesus' disciples are also walking on the road. And the happenings related to Jesus had been big enough, and we read this in other places in the Gospels, had been big enough that the whole city had been abuzz. I mean, you think of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday with this, self, this man self-proclaiming himself as the Messiah, all the crowds coming out around, waving the palm branches. 
Then there was this arrest by the Jewish Sanhedrin. So clearly the Jewish rulers didn't think that this was the Messiah. There's conflict there. Turning over to a public trial by the Roman governor. Pilate himself is there adjudicating the thing. The death sentence is passed. The crucifixion, none of that had been done in a corner. These things have been done publicly. And so the disciples, no doubt, walking on the road, are not the only ones talking about what has happened in Jerusalem the last few days. And as they are walking and talking, Jesus himself shows up on the road and starts walking with them. But they don't recognize him. And it's not just because they need glasses, right? Luke tells us in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is a divine blindness that has been put upon these disciples. And we see this idea of spiritual blindness a number of times throughout Luke. We can see it in the other gospel writers as well. But Luke uh, a number of times makes mention of this. So like in uh, chapter 9, verse 45, then again in chapter 18, 34, in those instances, Jesus is foretelling of the fact that he's going to be crucified and then rise from the dead. But the full meaning, the truth of what he is saying is, Luke tells us, hidden from them. They're not allowed to perceive what Jesus is saying. That same thing is happening here. Jesus is present with them. The disciples can see him. They can hear him. But the truth of who he really is, is hidden from them. So Jesus asks the two disciples what they're talking about. I love verse 17. They stood still looking sad. They're just, they're just dejected of what has happened. We talked about Mary's disappointment last week. I would imagine that these two disciples are experiencing something very similar. All their hopes and their dreams for the future have been tied up in Jesus and his success. And so they're sad. And they say to Jesus, haven't you heard what happened these last few days? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that has not heard about this? And Jesus plays dumb, and he's like, what? What things? You know, tell me. And so they proceed to tell Jesus all that has been happening concerning Jesus. I mean, I just love it. Of how he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. How everyone had thought he was going to be the Messiah who would redeem Israel. How he had been delivered up by the religious leaders and crucified. And then they tell about the, 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 uh, the, the testimony of the women. How they had seen an angel proclaiming that Jesus was alive. But then they had gone and checked it out. And they hadn't seen him. And this, you know, this is just the news. And then Jesus, his true identity still hidden, takes them to task. He says, O oh, foolish ones, slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory? And as they walk down the road, Jesus walks them through the story of the Bible, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Luke tells us. Now, the expression beginning with Moses doesn't mean the stories about Moses, you know, Moses and the bulrushes and all that sort of thing, but rather the writings of Moses, which would have been the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, and he walks through the Bible all the way from the very beginning through the prophets, and he is revealing to them from the scriptures how the Christ was to suffer before entering into his glory. 
And oh, what would that have been like to have been a, you, you know, we've spent two years here as pastors kind of like gesturing around at the story of the Bible. But if you had had like just an hour with Jesus to walk you through the story of the Bible, you'd gotten a lot more than you've gotten the last year and a half from me. But I would have loved to have been there for that Bible lesson. Like what parts of the scriptures did Jesus zero in on as he walked the disciples through the story of the Bible? Now, we don't know. But I wonder if Jesus showed the pattern of the suffering and the glory of God's deliverers over and over and over and over again. That's the same pattern. You can see it all throughout the story of the Bible. We've touched on that a number of times. As I was preparing this sermon this week, I thought, oh, there's some places we didn't get to. I should have gone back to those places. That's probably what Jesus was talking about. But we think about how Joseph the story of Joseph in Genesis had, been wrong, had wrongly been accused and suffered in prison before becoming the governor of Egypt and then saving all of his people. How Judah had offered himself as a ransom in the place of Benjamin and so become the forerunner of the Messiah. How the slain Passover lamb had brought about the exodus of Egypt. How the crucified serpent on the pole had brought about healing. How the sacrificial animals of the tabernacle brought about forgiveness and purity. How David had been persecuted by Saul before becoming king and delivering his people. How the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 had taken upon himself the sins of the world to bring the healing to Israel. Over and over again, I imagine Jesus showing the disciples the same reoccurring pattern of how God's deliverers have endured suffering prior to glory. And then I imagine him asking the two disciples, if the suffering before glory has been the pattern all throughout Scripture for God's deliverers, why would you expect that it would be any different when God sends the Christ? I think the disciples must just have been enraptured. They say later that their hearts burned within them as they were walking on the road. As Jesus is unpacking all of this, they're just picking up all of it and they're resonating with it. The truth they're seeing had been there all along. I mean, didn't Jesus himself say to us that the Christ would suffer and enter into his glory? And we had, like, we had not understood that, but that is, in fact, what he had said. Maybe just maybe Mary's tale wasn't an idle tale after all. So then they get to Emmaus and it's getting close to the end of the day. Jesus acts like he's going to keep going. They beg him to stay with them and to come in and eat with them. So he agrees to come in. And then when he gives thanks and he's breaking the bread, in that moment, their eyes are opened and they realize who they're talking to. You can just imagine that moment. They see him, they realize it, and then he's gone. And he vanishes from their sight. I mean, just think about that moment of rec recognition. Have you ever done those puzzles, you know, where it's like a duck or a rabbit, and you're staring at it, and all of a sudden, in a moment, it flips, and you see it. And you've been looking at it all along, but you didn't see it for what it was. Or it's the witch turns into the pretty woman, you know, that same little puzzle. Like, they're talking to Jesus, and he's just some traveler. But then suddenly, like, their, their eyes are open, and they see him, and they realize it's Jesus, and then he's gone. What that would have been like. 
They're so amazed, they say. Didn't our hearts burn within us when we were on the road? And they jump up at that moment and they run all the way back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, it's true, he really has risen from the dead. Mary was right. And when they get there, the other disciples are like, yes, we've seen him. Right? So now they know too. Now everyone knows. Now I just love this story. I love how Jesus appears incognito on the road. I love how he feigns ignorance about what's going on in Jerusalem. I love how the disciples are explaining to Jesus about Jesus. I imagine Jesus being like, mm, yes, tell me more. Tell me more, right? This is all very interesting. I love how Jesus lectures them about himself without them realizing that the subject of the lecture, the Christ, is the one who is giving the lecture. I love how Jesus pretends like he's going to go on when they get to Emmaus. And I love how the eyes of the disciples are finally opened as Jesus prays and gives thanks and breaks the bread. And then I love how Jesus vanishes from their sight right at that moment as they recognize him. I mean, I just love this whole story. And as I was reading this passage and preparing to preach on it this week, I wasn't quite sure the angle that I was going to go, and I was praying about it. And the thing that kept coming back to my mind as I was praying about it and reading the story was this question, why did Jesus do that? I mean, it makes for a great story, doesn't it? All the drama of them not knowing they're talking to Jesus, and it's a great story, but why did Jesus do that? Why did he hide himself from his two disciples for so long throughout that whole encounter without revealing himself to them? And then why does he reveal himself to them right at the end, right as he vanishes from their sight? If we were teaching a class, I would pause here and I would like ask you to think about that and then I would take some guesses from you all. Right, we're not doing that. The people online can't, you know, put their questions in. Right, but think about that for a bit. Why does Jesus hide from his disciples? Here's the truth, I think, that Jesus was both teaching when he walked through the story of the Bible and embodying as he interacted with his disciples. It's this truth. I am with you even when you don't realize it. I am with you even when you don't realize it. Jesus' interaction with the disciples on the road to Emmaus was one big object lesson that underscored a point that his disciples would need to understand before he ascended into heaven. The last thing that Jesus says to his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And our capacity as disciples of Christ to believe that he is with us always to the end of the age. Like we need to hold on to that truth. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples to hold on to the truth of his promise that he is with them always to the end of the age, even when they don't see him. And what better way to drive home the point that he would be with them even when they didn't realize it than to be with them even when they didn't realize it. He's doing the very thing that he is saying he's going to do in the future. 
It's the same point that he made when he opened up the scriptures to them and walked them through the story of the Bible. God had been present with his people all along even when it hadn't been clear to see. Ever since the beginning of the world, all throughout Israel's history, in spite of all the reversals and the sufferings and the trials, in spite of all the times that it seemed like things were not going right, in spite of all the times that it seemed like God was hidden, so that the prophet Isaiah says, you are a hidden God, you are far off. God was always with his people, always working his plan for their lives. Just like Jesus had been there all along with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, even when they didn't realize it. This whole passage, it's like a first century version of the poem Footprints in the Sand. And if that wasn't such an overused poem, I would read it, right? But we've read that poem before, but that is what's going on here. Jesus is with his disciples, even when it doesn't seem like he is with them. And some of you, I think, need that reminder particularly this morning. We all need it all the time, but some of you maybe this morning need that word, that Jesus is with you even when it doesn't seem like it. Perhaps life has not gone the way that you hoped that it would. There's been pain, it's been difficulty, it's been hardship, and it would seem based on circumstances that God has retreated from your life. That whatever plan he had in mind for you is petered out and it has failed. But don't believe it. Don't stand on the side of the road looking sad and forlorn. Jesus has not forsaken you. He is right there with you. Jesus' own story shows that suffering precedes glory and that God is still with us, still working his plan, even in the midst of our suffering. If that's how it worked for Jesus, should we expect it to be any different in our own lives? So what tempts you to disbelieve in the presence of God? Where are you tempted to believe that God has let you down or abandoned you? Your marriage, perhaps? Maybe your parenting, maybe your job, your friendships, your finances, your health. I'm not here this morning to tell you that everything's going to work out in all the ways that you've always hoped. Quite possibly it won't. Quite probably it won't. Because there's always inevitably suffering in this life. But Easter reminds us that resurrection is always there on the other side of the cross. If we enter into the cross with Jesus, Christ is always present with you. He has not forgotten you. He is still working his plan for you. He is still walking with you on the road, even when you can't see him. So Isaiah, again, who struggled himself with the hiddenness of God at times, says this, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. I'll wait for the Lord. He's hiding his face for now. I can't see him, but I'm going to keep waiting and hoping in him. Don't 
give up on Jesus. Even when you can't see him, even when he is hidden from your sight, he is still with you. I'm going to have the worship team come on up right now, and we're going to close out us with the song. And as we sing this song here this morning, I would encourage you to grapple with that sense that God has left you and the degree to which you are basing your sense of Christ's presence on your sense of Christ's presence rather than the promise of Christ's presence. So let's stand together and let's sing this song and let's be reminded that Christ is present with us. Normally I'm up here and I give you my benediction, which I'm going to do in a moment, but this is a little bit like the Marvel's post-credit scene if you're a Marvel's fan. So just sit back down for a second because I got a little bit more to say. I finished up my sermon and I was thinking about the benediction and as I was thinking about the benediction, I'm like, there's another thing I want to say. And it doesn't quite fit entirely with the text. I didn't know how to get it out of the text, so I just decided I'm not going to try to get it out of the text. I'm just going to talk to you kind of out of the whole text. The perceptive among you might still be asking the question, yes, but why does Jesus ever hide himself from view? Why does he ever do that? I mean, why not simply just stay present with us all the time? I mean, why have to give the promise, I'm with you always to the end of the age? Why not just make it obvious that he's with us to the end of the age? Why do we have to live in faith John chapter 12, I think of this one moment where Jesus is praying. He prays to the Father. He says, Father, glorify your name. And the voice comes from heaven. The voice says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd hears the voice from heaven. And some think it's an angel. Some think it's just thunder. Right? And then Jesus, interestingly, he says this. He says, this voice was for your benefit. It was not for mine. Jesus, even in his days on earth, did not need God's affirmation through his physical senses. He didn't need an audible voice from heaven. He didn't need to physically see God. It's not because he was bereft of physical senses or physical sensation, but it's because he had perfect spiritual eyes to see beyond the limitations of the flesh and the painful circumstances of the broken world. He was absolutely certain of what could not be seen. And he fully believed the promises of God. St. Maximus, as you know, is one of my favorite 7th century monks. And he says this, which I found to be very perceptive. He says that we must learn to live beyond our senses. So much of his writing is about learning to live beyond our senses. Says you have to learn to live beyond your senses if you're ever going to be able to see the true meaning of the world. For the true meaning of the world is beyond the world. It lies outside of the world. And if all you can ever see is the world, you're never going to see the true meaning of the world. You have to live beyond your senses. The completely natural man can't see beyond his senses. His life is driven and consumed by what he sees and feels and hears and smells. And how unhappy to relate to God and to the world like that. 
Part of growing in faith is getting to that point where we no longer rely upon our sense of God as the definitive support of our faith. To get to the place where we don't always need God to be tickling our spiritual funny bone, to be assured that he is there. To learn to see God in everything, the natural and the supernatural. For all of it, natural and supernatural, is from him and through him and to him, as the scripture says. He moves and lives in everything. The life and the energy of God lies at the core of all that he has made. At first, when we come to faith in God, God often meets us dramatically whether it's kind of in a sensational way or in our circumstances. We have a strong sense of God's presence, but then God slowly withdraws from our sense perception to teach us how to find him beyond our senses, beyond our circumstances, like how a parent steps away from an infant who is learning how to walk. It's part of teaching the child to walk as you walk away from the child. God does that with his children at times. And when God is weaning us from our reliance upon our senses, when he is teaching us that he is with us even in difficult circumstances, it will inevitably feel like the silence and the hiddenness of God. Because we're learning to see with new spiritual eyes and we're learning to hear with new spiritual ears. So if you're not seeing God this morning, It's not because he's not there. He's always there. He can't not be there. And it may not be because you are harboring sin or some source of rebellion. That might be the case. That's something to deal with. But it may be that he has receded into the background because he is teaching you to find him in a new way. So don't give up. Don't despair. Jesus is with you. Even when you don't sense it. So now I get to our benediction. So stand and let me give you your benediction this morning. Is the promise, the good word that Jesus gives us at the end of Matthew 28. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So go this week knowing, believing that Christ is with you even right now from this point forward to the end of the age.